Caraca! Young and Indigenous, Bella here presents our beloved elder, Juanita Jefferson. Growing up, I've always learned things from my gray elder here. She's always came to our high school sporting events. A good supporter she is, all around. In this yay episode, we talk about some of the issues that happened to our Lummi language and why it is still here today. She brings up how a group of elders that started talking about what can we do for our people, as in jobs, housing, education, building programs so that we could survive, pri- providing health care as well. You will get to hear the stories of how it was back in the day for our elders now. All of the good things elders have done for us today. Some of the very few that are still here today, like my beautiful auntie here. There's one particular story that she brings up, which you'll hear in this episode, about our late chief, Bill James, and how he preserved and learned our knowledge of our language, and how he's also passed down those teachings to our next generation, and some of the very few people who have got to learn our language from him today, that are now passing those knowledge and teachings down to the next generation so in that story you'll get to hear where our elder our chief bill james learned those things from and the very important people that were his teachers so heishka to them and rest in peace to our late chief bill james heishka I'm Juanita Jefferson. My maiden name was Toby. I'm from the original Toby family. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my dad was Bill Toby. Willie Toby is a friend of your, your grandfather. Uh, 
having almost lost the language and a lot of our people didn't even know if it language existed they might have heard some words but they didn't really know the language and they didn't hear a lot of people talk a loving language so my sister said that in the middle sixties the tribe got one of the community action programs that the federal government was funding to help communities develop their own social programs that would help them lift themselves out of poverty it because in those days the civil rights fights were going on and they were saying how the minority people had been left out and they they wanted a chance to make it so all over the country we had minority people coming out and protesting and make a noise and so was a lot of non-indian i mean white people were also protesting because they wanted civil rights to be fair and treat everybody fair so along comes this funded program called community action program and the tribe applied for it got it and it was the first program that allowed the tribe to hire their own staff and it was the first time they got to make decisions about their social planning program services without the BIA telling them what to do or how to do or when to do it and so the tribe was exercising its own freedom and its own right to do what they felt was best for us and there was a lot of good things that went on they created an education committee they went to the employment office and asked for help and how to get more work and jobs for our people how to get training so that they could do the job so they got on the job training they got a lot of different ways to help our people get jobs and about that time here comes in talco and arco and those so the employment office was helping our people get hired there it was just all kinds of new action going on and one of the things that happened in this particular subject that we're talking about was somebody just saying something about lummi language in that they didn't know the language they wondered who knew the language if anybody did and uh, I'm sure somebody said they wish they could speak language again and at that time we had these volunteers working here sort of as part of community action program but they called them vista workers they were volunteers of america and these two guys had been assigned to work here as these volunteer workers who will mostly just do whatever the community wants that is help them plan help them find resources answer questions for them uh just pitch in and help them do what makes their social lives better and let me people really wanted to improve their uh, standard of living because they had been unemployed and too long and they were tired of being criticized for being on welfare or using welfare and so they they really wanted to get out of that status that 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 way of other people looking down on us and so it was the white people called this kind of program pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps <laughs> that was a slogan <laughs> 
But that's exactly what our people wanted to do, and they, they went ahead and did it. So with language, that one part, when somebody said they they wondered more about the Lummi language, um, the VISTA workers said they'll help. So the idea was, well, then let's get some of the elders who could speak the language or used to and see what they, they would do. So they, got, they called them all together, and they sat around a table, and they, they started talking to each other about the language. What did somebody remember? And then they would say some words, and then somebody else would remember some words, and they just started sharing with each other what they, they remembered, and then helped each other recall and bring language back. And so this was going on. So the VISTA workers, who were just standing by, start writing it down. And they heard language, and then they would write the words just by sounding them out, because there was no alphabet. So they just used regular alphabet and sound out the words. And as they wrote them down, they got a longer list and a longer list, which would one day become uh, the first dictionary. But while they were gathering the information, it was being saved that way, because that's one thing our people never did was write our language down. In fact, they didn't write hardly anything down because everything was always by memory and, um, and, and teachings that were passed on. So when we lost the language, a lot of our teachings were lost with the language because the cultural values are actually embedded in the Lummi language words. Mm -hmm. So when they taught words, you were also being taught the, uh, the values of what we believe in and then how that goes with ceremony and tradition. So the words were absolutely vital to, to get to know more about the values. And so the people were, as they were remembering language, they were remembering the teachings that went with the language. So this is the way they used to teach hundreds of years ago, by storytelling, by example. And so at that very time, our, uh, the man that was considered the historian in the tribe was Al Charles, and he was one who remembered a lot about family trees. And he did remember Lummi language, but one of the things that still not real clear to me, but I have been told there were four Lummi languages. Uh, there was what they called the high-class language, and the middle-class in the low class, and, and there might have even been a, a slave language. I don't know. That That's kind of vague to me. Yeah. It's not written about, uh, you know, in, in any books, 
but I just remember hearing people say there was four levels of the language. And, of course, that's a real old-fashioned or old-style class system where the high-class lemmies were allowed to know a certain language, but the ones below that were not allowed to speak that language. And then the middle and then, then the low-class and it's hard for us to talk about because we were learning about civil rights where everybody's equal. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to talk about yeah. high class, middle class, low class. And I don't like to talk about it mm-hmm. because I don't know the exact way to describe it. And I don't even know the lummy words that would have described it. Mm-hmm. But the language that Al knew is the one that was, was taught and then the ones that were refreshing their memories, they were bringing back a set of words that would say, this is what that meant, and so now, from here on out, that's what this means. It was written down. And so we end up now with one language. And and a lot of people are uncomfortable because they say, well, how do we know that's the real loving language? Because there was different levels. And we say, well, we can't, we can't do anything about that, because people who were high class, middle class, or low class don't exist anymore. They were forbidden to carry those languages on. So it isn't our fault, you know, that it it got lost, and uh, we're we're not. You know, we're not wanting to bring back a class system, <laughs> but yeah. what we're doing when we re- we remember it, it's only to respect that that was the way our elders believed, and we respect that. Mm-hmm. So we are we are not going to criticize or try to fight over <laughs> who who's speaking um, high class or middle class. And um, the way I was taught was. It's wrong, it's rude to ever talk about somebody being low class. That That is rude. Yeah. We don't do that. Whatever that meant in the past, we don't know, we've let it go. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we don't want anyone's feelings to be hurt by talking that way. So that's the way my family was raised. So in learning this language, it was it was okay for me and my sister because we thought everybody here is equal. <laughs> Even the elders are smarter than us, but today they don't think of anybody that way. They don't think high, middle, low class. They don't do that. There, there are people who they care about their families and each other. They try to help each other mostly. So... We had now also learned about Christianity because they took away our religion and replaced it with Christianity. So here was another big change, and it did affect our language because even the uh, Christian religions were not wanting us to speak our language. The religions were saying, forget your language, don't, don't, don't do that, don't bother with that no more. And when they sent our children away to the boarding school, 
whether it was a church school or not, they punished the children if they spoke their languages. So the children stopped speaking language. And when they came home, their parents didn't really want them to speak their languages anymore because the children would be punished. So they, they let them learn English because that way they wouldn't get punished outside by the bigger society. So here are people were taught to be afraid to speak their language because somebody would be punished. So the impact on our, our social life was, was terrible. It was awful. Took away our language and our basic beliefs, our basic values were being made fun of. We were being shamed. We were being punished. And we would only get rewarded if we would speak English, <laughs> American English. So that's what happened to, to kill the language. But in the meantime, there were still people who didn't give the language up. They kept it kind of to themselves or secret. And thank goodness they did that. Because when it was time to say, can anybody say words in Lummi language? Yeah. They came forward and they said, I remember this. <laughs> and pretty soon their memories were coming back. And they weren't afraid to share it with each other, and they talked more and more. And so that's how we started to get our language back in the 60s. And then it, it just grew and grew. And in the meantime, Bill James, who was a very young, he might have been a boy, young man, young person, he was being taught already by Al, and Bill was, uh, he was he's very clear-minded about it. And so he was able to speak the whole language fluently. He could give a whole speech in Lummi language, which was something that most Lummies could not do. But now it's coming back. So here we are, uh, people beginning to feel good, knowing that a lot of the words are now being written down, and uh, they could even be uh, translated because it's written in English alphabet by the sounds. Mm -hmm. And so anybody could pick it up, like, kind of look at it, and sound out a word. Mm -hmm. And um, that, was, that was all to the good. And, of course, it was not in a school. It was outside of school. It was just here in the community. And um, <laughs> so it, it, sometime in the 70s, now I moved home in 69, and in the 70s, uh, I'm working for the tribe now, and I'm working in community action program. <laughs> and I'm uh, close to the tribal council. I work for them. And um, they got another grant, and they called it uh, Heritage Project or Heritage Program. And uh, they could use the money to uh, uh, for cultural reasons, and one, and one of them said, uh, well, let's find out what the people want to learn about the culture. So he made a list, and he sent it out to all the employees, and um, it came back. And he was gone on a trip at the time, but all of the lists came. There I was, you know, right there in front of me. And I looked at him and said, Lummi language is not in there. 
and I knew people wanted to speak language. So I took the form, and I redid it, and I added Lummi language, and I sent the list out again. <laughs> and this time they come back, Lummi language, check, 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 check. Yeah, 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 everybody wants Lummi language. And he comes back, and he says, what happened here? Well, I noticed that Lummi language wasn't on here. And so I sent it out again. But here it is. And he says, well, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to do that? And I said, well, Bill James can speak the language. <laughs> so he, he was, and this was Sam Kagey. He was the head of the heritage program. <laughs> And then, and then sometime later, and here he comes, and he says, okay, we're going to start the language Bill's going to teach. And I, I didn't know that how it happened, but Bill told me a couple of years later, he says, well, one day, he says, Sam just shows up at my door, and he says, when are you going to start teaching the language class? <laughs> He's like, what? Says, yeah, he says, what? <laughs> he says, well, we want to get the language class started. When are you going to start? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, we'll do that. (laughs) So he did. He did. Him and his mother put up, you know, a plan for how they could start the classes. And, and of course, I was one of the first students to sign up and get in the class. And it was just really well received. They, uh, you know, they they had people coming forward and getting in the class. And then as time went by, um, and, and as I said, I wish I had written this all down. And But as time went on, then it turned out very soon that they identified that George Adams uh, could also speak Lummi language and that he had gone to UW and he had actually taken the um, linguistics class so he knew how to write any language in the international alphabet and and Bill did know some of that too um, but he preferred the alf- regular alphabet with sounding out is easier for the rest of us mm-hmm. but George knew the international language so he could actually go and listen to anybody talk and hearing it he could write it down in the international and then he could, he could remember it and learn to make the sound so George was very good at it so what turned out good for us is that George and Bill taught the class together then so we have both of them and I got to be in the class and have the benefit of both of them and George would teach us the sounds that go with the the language and uh, he, he gave us tapes so we could play them back and listen and then repeat the sounds and practice them. So that was lots of fun. It was much easier for me to do it that way. And so we we were all just, I think, we were just all so happy that we had this new program and we had good teachers. And, uh, and then it was decided that they would have it required to be taught in the tribal school and the council passed a resolution, which again, I can't remember the number, but we could get it for you, that said that uh, they 
made a, a law, a resolution as a law, that Lummi language would be taught in the tribal schools with the goal that eventually a person could speak. Um, I think I can't remember how they worded it. Conversational Lummi language. Um, I'm trying to think how that how that said, but we'd have to look that up too. And so the council passed the resolution, and then they had Bill had several people now that he'd been teaching to be teachers, and those people became the teachers in the tribal school programs. And I remember one of the early ones was Shirley Bob and. And uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember all of them. But eventually, uh, Ted Solomon, and you know that there's a whole string of them you probably know, yeah. uh, that uh, became those teachers following up on Bill James's teachings. So that worked. That was our that was our goal, and it actually was accomplished. Yeah. So uh, then they decided that. Uh, uh, all the information that was being collected was in um, the tribal, one of the tribal offices, and they they had decided that Bill James was the tribal historian now, so he was to be in charge of it. So it was the Lummi History Department, and then as time went on, then they decided that we, they would have Lummi Language Department, and Bill was in charge of that. So it just kept growing and growing. And uh, we we uh, had a hard time getting enough Lummi language teachers. We still are we need more, mm-hmm. but they're coming along. And um, I I think that today we have uh, um, oh, Matt Warbus, and he's excellent. He's trained several people <laughs> to yeah. take his place if sure. necessary. He's wonderful. Okay. So uh, we're we're really fortunate that our people in the 1960s had that that desire that dream. Let's bring our language back, mm-hmm. and from it today we now have uh, Lummi language curriculum being taught in our tribal all our tribal schools, and the Ferndale School is also teaching it, <laughs> and. Um, and it, it, it's you know it, it's even it's open to non lemmies as well over there, which I think is really nice because um, even though Bill felt he wanted to protect our language, so that somebody wouldn't steal it and then use it in books of their own, yeah. you know, like a lot of the outsiders do, take our our stories and write them and put them in a book and then take credit for it. Yeah. He, he didn't want that to happen. He wanted our people to be the ones who did that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but in the Ferndale School, they do allow anybody that wants to take the class. And the reason I like it is because I think it creates more friendship. Because, like, for me, if I went to a, a foreign country to stay for a while, I'd want to learn some of their language so I could be polite and, and friendly, and um, and and respect them by you know listening and, and understanding a little more what they're saying, and I, so I think that's why I I like the idea of non lummies learning our language, um, but I don't want them to abuse it. Yeah. So I agree with Bill about that. So we've had all these kinds of things go on uh, from the 1960s till now. 
to uh, revive that language. And along with it comes the teachings of the values and then the traditions, the beliefs, and especially respect, you know, respecting uh, what those values are and respecting the elders for what they do and teach and learning to listen. <laughs> Very important. Although the these uh, iPhones that we have nowadays, we do an awful lot of uh, looking and, and <laughs> reading. Uh, so it's, you know, kind of a strange new life. But uh, another good thing that went along with it is, uh, let's see back, I'm not sure what years it was, but following up with the 70s when the language started and the council wrote the resolution to ensure that the language would be taught in the school, they also provided for the employees, they can spend a half hour a day in a language class, a Lummi language class, and be and be paid. They aren't. They're going to be docked. They can actually be paid if they attend the class. And so they actually have employee classes going on. Um, I think they're. I don't remember if they're twice a week or three times a week. And um, gosh sake, I forget. One of the Kurtz boys is teaching it. Terrible. I'm getting bad with names. <laughs> but I'm so proud of him because. He announces it every day. He reminds people every day, and he also has it on Facebook so he can take the class. Is his name Tony? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to see. I know it's on here. Um, so, So that's how far it's gone. So even to this very day, they still have employee, well, even people from the community can also uh, go to those classes. And um, Keith, yeah. Kara, she goes, um, she comes out from Canada, yeah. and she's really thankful for it. Yeah, across the border. Yeah, she knows the language across there, and yeah. Keith is learning the Lumi language. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so, James Kurtz. James. Okay. Yeah, James Kurtz. So, that's that's uh, all. Those are pluses, and and I'm positive there's more. Uh, for a little while, Bill was teaching language with the hope that some of our people would be able to write songs. And so my son Bill did. He did compose a song with Lummi language. And the first time he sang it for Mary Helen Kagi, she was so happy. <laughs> Because she, she had wanted to hear uh, a hymn in Lummi language, and he, he wrote a short one, you know, with the Lummi phrases. And uh, she was just so happy when he sang that to her. And he, he sang it for Father Pat, too. And <laughs> Father Pat was really, really pleased and happy, too. So, so Bill's wish, his dream was coming true there, too, uh, that, that it was used for, to write some music. And I know others have done it too. And I and my my granddaughter, Cat, uh, wrote she wrote one too. So I think that uh, all those dreams from the past, if somebody didn't say, 
I wish I knew the language. I wonder if somebody could teach or something. If somebody just didn't say that and somebody heard it and said, let's do it. I know, right? <laughs> I'm always like, just, I wish I could practice it every day. Yeah, me too. I do too. And I do have a hard time saying the words because mm-hmm. my it, my mouth isn't shaped right. Mm-hmm. I ended up, my mother is white, so I ended up probably with the Caucasian <laughs> mouth shape. But the ones who get the lummy, uh, inherit the lummy shape, they can make the sounds much easier and accurately. <laughs> so I've always kind of, you know, felt bad for myself because I can't do it. <laughs> and I, I was taking a class one day, and this elder lummy woman, she came up to me, she says, no, like this. And she grabs my face, like this. And it hurt. <laughs> You're like, okay. No, I already am a grown woman. <laughs> I mean, true. <laughs> But I, I never forget that, and I say, oh, I just can't make the right sound, so I'm embarrassed. Um, so I I never really tried to, but um, when I was in Seattle before I moved home, and this was in the 1960s, um, I was asked to uh, speak on a, a TV show. Um, it was Channel 9, it's, you know how it, that is, as an educational mm-hmm. channel. And I was supposed to speak on there with a uh, a commit a panel, yeah. and they said, "Could you say something in Lummi?" Well, of course I couldn't. So Sam and Mary Helen Kagi lived in Seattle. They were there on relocation program, which you probably know a little bit about. <laughs> no, <laughs> but they were there. So I called him up and I said, "Sam, they want me to say something in Lummi. Is there anything you could tell me that I could say?" <laughs> So he said, now siam nischalacha siam. And so I listened to him, and I did the same thing. I, I just picked up the sounds, and I wrote them as they sounded. And then I practiced, and I was able to say it. And that was before I moved home and took Bill's class, but that was the one thing that I picked up from Sam. And, and so I, I went to this, this, this panel show, and they didn't ask me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> didn't ask me to say You're like, I did all this practice. But see, now I wouldn't wait for them to ask me. I just do it. Mm-hmm. I just do it now. Even though I can't speak fluently, I can say that, and I'll, I'll start out uh, very often when I'm speaking publicly. I'll start out with Nautsiamnis Jalaja, and then I'll explain to them what it means. So I learned that simple thing (laughs) but it makes you feel better it makes you feel more whole wholesome so uh it's really worth learning the language uh, to uh just pick up those values and what i always loved about bill and france teaching is that that they did teach us the respect that goes with it and you can't really do that in a book it's really hard to teach that that that's like you have to do it in person and then it's the way you present your physical self and bill and fran they just were so natural and i love to be with them because when for a little while he he was able to teach a class from northwest indian college on what we called indian museums 
and we wanted to know more about them so that we we'd try to get the tribe to get a museum for us mm -hmm. so he he had a class and of course I was in the class <laughs> and then uh, with the, the college we could travel we field trips so we we went to five different Indian uh, cultural recent uh, centers on trips which is just wonderful when you're a student. Yeah, <laughs> we went to Nia Bay and Suquamish and Yakima, and we went up to uh, UBC, and um, I, I think we made it over to Victoria. I, I, I'm not sure now. I remember those four. And um, when we went, well, we were supposed to bring a, a bag lunch, and sometimes people would forget. So Fran would always share what her and Bill brought with whoever needed something. And I'll remember this one time we were traveling and it was, oh, maybe a snack or a break. And she had this candy bar and she's, we were all out. We didn't have anything. So she cut the candy bar into five pieces and we each got a piece. <laughs> <laughs> and I never forget that. It was like such a, it was like such a gift. You know, just that little sharing. But they taught us those things, how humble, how simple, and, you know, how to treat people. And so all of the classes we were in with them, they were always making us feel wholesome. So when the time came for basket making, weaving, cedar weaving, the same thing happened again. They were that same patient, teaching people, and whole families came. Grandparents, parents, and children would come to those classes. Men, the men would sit there and learn how to make baskets. Just, and the room would just be uh, buzzing with, you know, with good sounds, never any harsh sounds. That's what I love about being around uh, Indian people that way because the sounds are always kind of like easy on your ears not when you're in the gym or something like that's yeah, different yeah, so <laughs> yeah. that's but cool. but if you're sitting in a room where your hands are busy or somebody is talking uh, there's that warm kind of a voices are I don't know just gentle good to sounds on the ears even when they laugh it sounds so good and that's the way they taught it just uh it just left me feeling so relaxed and, and Bill would joke and he'd say yeah that they he'd make a joke about um, how do they say uh, basket basket cases we're basket cases or something like that we're learning how to get over being a basket it's a white man's joke when, you know, when he'd make a joke about an Indian Indian way and it was, it was just, I don't know, I miss it so much, and I, I just treasure that they were here to do that. So now we do have some really good teachers that are following up, following their footsteps. But in the tribal school, we now have uh, Lexi Tom. I don't know if you ever get to talk to her. Yeah, yeah. She got uh, her PhD in um, uh, Indian curriculum pl design plan, and she is now in charge of our cultural language and history at the tribal school. Mm -hmm. So she's written, she's writing the curriculum 
for language K through 12. It will become accredited. It will be credits, recognized credits, because it's in a curriculum form that the state will honor. So that's what she's doing now. So if you ever get to talk with her, you can find out more about that. And um, I'm just so happy that we're finally reaching our goal. What we really need are Lummi people to go to college and study linguistics or curriculum development so they can be the teachers of the future. Better yet, professors. <laughs> they could be professors at the college and uh, really, really uh, have the whole thing. You know, which before, we're lucky because we have conversational Lummi language. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, what happened in Hawaii, we, they sent a bunch of us over there to find out how they did their language program. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they did was send their uh, people to university to get degrees, mm -hmm. master's degrees in language. Mm -hmm. So they could develop their Hawaiian language that way. And then they brought it back and they put it in the public school right away. And they have public schools that teach Hawaiian language. And the, the school's just nothing but language. And the kids can't speak anything but Hawaiian from the first to the fifth grade. Wow. After the fifth grade, they then start teaching English uh, uh, classes. But they, they actually are, it's called immersion, language immersion. <laughs> They're immersed in the language. And so to help the family, they also have classes for parents. So the parents are learning too, so that the whole family hopefully yeah. gets to learn. But the kids are uh, forced <laughs> to speak the language uh, all day, every day in every class. And when we were over there, we went on a tour of the schools, and here they were teaching the kids old Hawaiian traditional ways of uh, physical fitness, the ways, the things that they did to make themselves strong and, and to practice balance. They'd have to stand on this rock, and then they have to do certain things and not fall off the rock. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it just, it's just amazing how much they're doing for their children. And they told us that this, when the kids have to take the state test, you know how you do in a public school? Yeah. When they take those state tests, they get better grades than the white kids do. Because there's something about when you learn your language, but you can speak two languages, it makes your brain stronger <laughs> it is so they they actually said their kids actually can do better in in those tests because of this immersion program so we came back here uh, there was about a dozen of us that got sent over there to tour the school programs and also to attend uh, an education conference for indigenous people so people from all over the world came and uh, uh, we came back here and we just said, oh, Lummi's got to have immersion program. <laughs> yeah. 
but we have never been able to get it because it, it costs too much. <laughs> but we aren't giving up. We're, we're still going to keep trying to get one uh, so that we can take advantage of our, um, our people wanting to be teachers. See, that's the whole thing. Yeah, it almost brings tears to my eyes <laughs> just thinking about it. But it, it is exciting. It's exciting to know that uh, we have a lot going on here. And the general community doesn't get to know all these things that are going on. And I, I just really wish that uh, we could do more to communicate <laughs> better. Um, but I am on the, the school board, and, and I know how hard it is to communicate everything because there's so much going on all the time and especially with the COVID thing yeah. it just interrupted uh, so many good things really so but what we are another thing we're missing actually is um, news reporting uh, I personally think we should we should have had people out roaming around getting news <laughs> <laughs> writing it down and, and I think we get stuff from other tribes. Oh, there's just an example here. I just saw it here the other day, too. Yeah. yeah, we get a few newsletters from other tribes, and they're just modest little newspapers. Yeah. But I wish we did a little bit more of maybe simple writing, you know, just... Like if we had more personal things about people here at Lummi, yeah, with, with you know it 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 shows how we respect them, mm -hmm. and it gives the people a chance to see who's who, and kids can say, oh, that's my grandpa, Aww. or my uncle, yeah. you know, and it gives them something that they they can uh, identify with. <laughs> and these are just simple little ones, and I kind of wish we had a little newspaper. And here, look at, they put every birthday Aww. for the month. Every single birthday yeah. is there. I think, how personal. Yeah. You know, isn't that just nice? And there are a few that actually put some some language in their, their papers. And when the Squaw Qual does that, I really like it. When they put some lummy words in. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's just... Oh, I love it. They should be doing it constantly. All the time. And everything that we do, we should have some lonely language to go with it. But more of the programs are doing that. They are. Mm -hmm. We're getting there one day at a time. I think it's a where program is using the language as a teaching tool to reach mm -hmm. out to the people. So I'm happy about that, too. But the language has done a lot for us. Yeah, it's helped us a lot. So many and the ones that uh, took it underground and kept it secret and safe for us, thank God. Yeah, like, thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know where we would be if we did it. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm yeah. always like, thankful. My grandpa has always told me, go learn a language, you know, because he knows five languages, my grandpa Armour. And I'm just like, well, why don't I just go my whole life, I kind of think, like, where are you just hinting to me that I'll learn our Lummi language, you know? I know. <laughs> I just, we just loved him. Uh, he used to, him and David worked together when they had that boxing oh, yeah. club down there. Him and David were buddies. And, um, and then, of course, he worked with Smitty 
and, and Smitty and I were buddies. And and then uh, when when we had a a program um, community hearing panel, and it was for youth, and uh, it was something that Smitty Luti and me and Armor and different ones put together so that. Uh, when when a youth got in trouble for the first time, they could either go to the juvenile court or they could come to the hearing panel. And the hearing panel would be us. They would meet us and we would say, and who are you? And they would explain what they knew about their family. And we encouraged them to bring a, a, a parent with them. And the parent would be sitting there listening and, and helping. And uh, we'd say, do you know what you were accused of or, or why? And they'd say, yes, we'd say, would you tell us about it? So they would. And then we would say, well, what do you think would help you to either, you know, get over that or or make amends for it or how to change it? So then they would tell us what they thought would help. And so we would say, if we could, we'd say, well, then let us help you do that. And, and just for example, there was one who said, well, I wanted to make some regalia, and I don't know how to do it. I, I'd like to learn how to, to, to bead something. So we said, okay, that's going to be your punishment. We're going to hire somebody to teach you to do that beadwork. And if you complete it, then you'll be clear. Your record will be clear. You won't have a juvenile record. And they say, okay. <laughs> and one time it was somebody said, well, I wanted to play baseball, but I don't have a mitt, and I couldn't get on the team. <laughs> we, so we said, okay, if we buy you a mitt, and we check with the rec and make sure you could get on the team, that you'll be required to do this and this, then you'll have your record clear. Okay, okay I'll do it. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> it worked. There were some kids that never got in trouble again, mm-hmm. and one went in the military, and, and he just said, you know, he was so glad that somebody helped him, because yeah. once you get a record, then sometimes you can't get in the military with, if you have a juvenile record. So, so we did all those, in, in Armor and uh, Smitty and Lutie were just so great with the kids. They were so great. And they would use themselves as example. We're not perfect. We made mistakes too. Yeah. And so it was just little things like that that uh, I know David enjoyed working with him, of course, at the gym and with the boxing. <laughs> it was so great. And, yeah. and I just always loved it when he'd speak J- Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember going to the mall with him all the time, and he'd just be sitting in the cafeteria listening to all the Koreans and Japanese. Because he understood all the three of those languages, and that just like, <laughs> it amaze me. And I'm just like, how do you know that? And what did you know? I'm all these questions in my head. Like, what did you do back in the day? And you know, when did you like? When did you think that question? You know, being in Korea. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm gonna learn the language. You know, like you said. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, they they were just so they were so much. Just enjoyed them so much, and we miss them. So it's uh, it's Lummi's way of keeping a cultural value alive, and that is the way we treat each other mm-hmm. and how we remember each other, and and those little gifts of humor 
Oh my goodness. Just being able to laugh and tease. <laughs> and at the same time know how much the other person really cares and values. And uh, and I always loved the way Armour talked about Irene with such love and respect. <laughs> Just so touching. Oh my gosh. I remember when they went to, was it, didn't they go to Graceland? Or did they go south? They went south, I think. I can't remember if they went all the way over there or not. But uh, they went south. And it's, it seems like their car broke down. And, and the people, the Indian people there just pitched in and helped get them on the road again. And, it, it, oh, I just, I love to hear them talk about it. And then with Irene, we uh, she helped start the anti program. She was the first one. Aww, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that was where we knew a lot of people responded to her. You know, they would they would welcome. They were happy to see her. And then if they had a problem, they'd be able to share it with her, and she could gently help find answers and resources to help them in such a way that they didn't feel uh, put down or lesser, you know, that they felt wholesome <laughs> instead in that auntie program. You know, aunties love you and they want to take care of you. And uh, she was so good at it. Aww. And I was just wishing they had continued it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we got some more aunties coming yeah. along. <laughs> and and that's what we try to tell, the, like the AWARE program. It's hard to get it across to them. I, I yeah. actually never knew that about my grandma. Yeah. I, I just, I love my grandma so much. Yeah. I can't imagine all the things that I could have got to learn from her. She still is here. Mm -hmm. And I was starting just to learn those teachings from her. And that's really sad when she did pass away. Yeah. You know, and it just breaks my heart because our family totally broke after that. That's so true, isn't it? It happens to families. Mm -hmm. uh, in the modern, it's the modern uh, system that we're living in. It's just not as, uh, what is it, holding together, you know, that keeping together, family networking togetherness um, it's easy to lose it because like I'm from raised in the city I have brothers and sisters three who stayed in the city they've never moved back and they're just so citified mm -hmm. I mean it, it's like night and day you know me and my sister that moved here we just fell in love with our people and uh, we would set up for hours with our people, you know, to help or listen or uh, be supportive, uh, whether it was a funeral or Siawan or or something like that, because uh, that's the way we are here, or we were until COVID. <laughs> and um, but down there, it, it, they they can't even begin to understand why we would spend so many hours, you know, with funerals and and uh, smokehouse and things like that. I was just talking or thinking of my thoughts this morning where um, how I remember my, like my, not my students, but my classmates, 
You know, they would uh, miss school to go crabbing or fishing or hunting or funerals or, you know, salmon mm-hmm. in general. And they would, you know, they wouldn't get to graduate or, you know, pass classes yeah. because of those cultural. Yeah. They were doing those cultural things, you know, our ways of life. Mm-hmm. You know, the government or the school board or system uh, wouldn't have let them graduate mm-hmm. because they missed so many days with it at the same time. I was like, yeah. it's like, those are our cultural teachings and ways that I don't. Yeah. No, but I don't understand that those are that those are the things that we should be doing. Mhm. Mhm. I agree. I my first first well I would I had several jobs here but when they um they started Lummi Tribal Enterprises which was called Light and that was started because of the aquaculture program and the aquaculture trainees were ready to go to work and we had the hatcheries so we wanted to put the people into those jobs they were trained for so they created administrative uh, departments and offices and one of them was personnel administration and so I got to be the first personnel director so I got to help design uh, the personnel system and we designed it for the aquaculture people so that it was useful to them in, in something, well, something strange. In, in Lummi, it, it, it seemed humorous. But uh, somebody in one of the hatcheries uh, went in Siouan. But the white supervisor was coached or coaxed by the other Lummi workers to not tell anybody. So personnel didn't know. Management didn't know. And this person was in Seattle and, and I think it, it finally got known within a week or two afterwards. And so I had to go to the executive director and say, well, this is our culture, you know, and it is something that we respect and we feel should be honored and and not punished we should not punish a worker because they have to be gone to go in Seattle so I had been around the Seattle people and I did misunderstand a little bit but I thought it would be okay if we excused somebody for two weeks to be in Seattle and not get punished or lose their job and then afterwards, I was sort of scolded to say, they were saying, we might spend the whole winter in Seattle. We never know exactly how long. And I, it's not two weeks. And I, oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I coaxed the executive director to say, don't punish them. Let them have the two weeks off to go take care of their cultural needs. And so we said, well, what happens? Well, then the smokehouse will send the person back to work, but they have to keep their gear on, and they have to bring their pole, and they have to continue to go through the door backwards, yeah. and they aren't going to be talking and talking and, you know, carrying on. Okay, so workers had then could they could come back and go to work and not lose their job. Wow, wow. <laughs> it did work. But the white executive director uh, listened to us and went along with us. That was that was he was a good one. Yeah, he was one of the good ones. And the white manager that originally let the employee go and kept it a secret, 
he was a good person too. So a lot of them didn't get credit for really being helpful to us, mm -hmm. but some of them were not nice, mm -hmm. and they, you know, they weren't. They got scolded by me. <laughs> no, they didn't understand. So we we went through that uh, with the early tribal enterprises of of trying to help the white people teach us to run a business. But like they wanted to do it their way, but their yet way, yeah. we wanted to do it our way, but a more simpler way. Yeah, so our, our aquaculture workers could still honor their culture, yeah. not have to give it up. So it, it was a balance, and we kind of got that there. We, we st I still feel it's a little awkward right now because we don't have that overall concern but um, anyway we can still we can still do it people can still get time off to go do that if they need to but uh, I don't know I'm uneasy about how we're, we're getting to be too sit cityfied yeah. <laughs> some of our ways <laughs> but those things and, and now with COVID interrupting our funerals that's taken away a lot of our culture mm -hmm. too. I don't know how we're going to go back to it. Yeah. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, in fact, just me saying that makes me realizing I'm going to have to talk to more people uh, at the tribal center to make sure that we don't just say, hey, now we're so white, we'll just stay that way. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm not, you know, I'm not racist obviously I'm not racist I'm half white mm -hmm. <laughs> but I do know the difference in white ways and Indian ways and um, I prefer Indian ways and I, I try to guard and protect them as much as I can Definitely. so that's why uh, I'm happy that the language is revived I'm sorry that the boarding schools were so devastating to our, our uh, cultural ways, especially the children, the damage that was done. And of course now in Canada, we're hearing it's over 7,000. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Uh, I feel, I just feel heartbroken. I mean, uh, very often it just makes me want to cry and then get angry yeah. and um, just tell somebody off. <laughs> and and wonder um, what's it going to be like when we do our research here. They already know some of the graves have been found, but it isn't wholesale yet. And but when they get to all the the Indian schools, they're going to find more. And I know there's some at Chamao. I know that. And it just uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't at Tulalip because they had that Indian school there. But one of the elders from there told this story at a conference at Tulalip. And it was real hard for her to talk publicly, but somebody coaxed her to tell the story. So when she went up to the mic, she was just almost whispering. Her, her voice was so subdued. But she said, uh, I was a little girl in the, the boarding school here, and that winter, a, a lot of children died, and they put them in boxes. And because it was freezing cold, 
they were there in the by the playground um, I think there was a, a cover but they stacked them up and she's a little girl and she said and I just remember looking at all those boxes with those dead children in there she's just a little girl and she still couldn't get over it it just hurt and impacted her so much and that story isn't told that's not in the history books mm -hmm. And I wouldn't know it if I hadn't heard it, seen her. And somebody had to hold her, you know, hold her hand when she told the story because it hurts so bad to talk about it. And I thought, what would it be like to be a child and know your friends? Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. So what would happen is the weather is so bad the school doesn't notify the family and they can't send the bodies home because it's cold and there's no transportation. And um, so that's what they did. No respect. And um, one, one living person that could still tell the story. Now, there's another person here who's alive now and who told me this story when she was just probably not five years old maybe less and her and her sister um, were were to be be sent away to Chamawa because their mother was murdered and uh, they were sending them to Chamawa and so she said she remembers this part where they were put on the back of a truck an open truck and they had a blanket and her and her sister who was just a year or so older than her huddled there on the back of the truck with the one blanket all the way to Chamawa and she remembers crying and being cold and she said when she got there, she remembers that some older girls came out and took them. And she remembers those older girls comforted her. And that was the only positive thing that she could say. She remembered that they cared, took care of them, looked after them. And that's, that's all she wants to remember. I love her so much. And yeah, so she she has told me that story, and I I just hurt for her <laughs> when she tells it. And she's smiling and so gentle and loving and forgiving. Yeah. She's so forgiving. Can you imagine when we, yeah. she is like that because all of the stuff she's endured. Mm -hmm. like, like she's yeah. Like and yeah. to think, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully she is brave enough before she you know passes on. You know with everything going on, her story can really be heard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If, and like that one lady that got up and shared her story publicly, there was hundreds of people at that conference, and they were mostly all social workers from the welfare offices that was training, orientation training for them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course, I always get to be there because I'm in community action. I'm doing all this stuff. And uh, one of my 
acquaintances was a speaker, and that was uh, Janet uh, Janet McLeod, who was a famous protest uh, leader for the Puyallup Nisqually Nisqually fish in fish wars, and she was speaking also. But it was the same way for her when she got up to speak. Uh, she had a, it was like a flashback, a post-traumatic stress flashback. I don't know if you're familiar with them yet or not. You may be eventually if you're not. Okay. She got up and she started to talk about her experience and how she was treated as a, an Indian and the city. And um, it was so painful for her, she got angry. And she was talking really mean. And those white people, their, their social workers are all sitting there, and they were just like shriveling up. <laughs> she had a hard time quitting <laughs> when she came off the stage. I knew exactly how she felt. And I went up and grabbed her hand and walked with her down the hall. And she said, oh, I got I could hardly stand it. Just telling her story, she got all upset again. The flashback came back, all came back. So the painfulness of it for some of us is just uh, un, you know, unbearable. But I discovered over the years, the more I talked about it, the more calm I could be, and I didn't get emotionalized. And I could tell the story without breaking down. But the first time I told my story, I broke down and cried in front of everybody in this big, giant room full of people. It was really hard to get over that. Every time I'd start to tell the story, I'd get <laughs> And then finally, I grew up and I could say it without crying. <laughs> oh my God, that was the funniest feeling, though, when I could finally do it calmly. I could definitely understand that. Same thing when I try to talk. 
you know, talk about things I'd like to, you know, I just start cracking, you know, because it's, you don't talk about it. So it you do. It's yeah. The all, be- all the emotions come back up. They're real. Yeah, and you're like, oh, whoa, you know, this is what I've been pushing down back into myself. Exactly. Yeah. Like right now, I'm learning to let things go so that I can let new things in. Yeah, yeah, good for you. And I think that's, I think that um, education really did help me because I could begin to verbalize some things. But then what really helped me was the um, uh, talking circles, the 12 step program, those kinds of things helped me uh, get over that uh, fear that pain, the memory of things, you know, and I started being able to get a grip on it and uh, and cut, and let go, you know, let go of the resentment or the anger, or the fear that was there, and uh, it it just helped me enjoy life a little bit more. <laughs> and so now, uh, you know, even I'm 85 years old, but still I can feel the, you know, the the old pain. But now I don't feel uh, I don't feel afraid of it. I used to just really fear overflowing. I was afraid I'd start crying and never be able to stop. <laughs> At first, yeah. that's the way I felt. And of course, I always stopped. But it always felt like I was never going to be able to stop. And that just oh, that wore me out. That part. <laughs> So I, I finally, you know, going through all those, um, I also did uh, co-counseling at the college with uh, Shelley Macy, and that helped a lot. So it just kind of like kept, I just kept practicing over the years different ways of trying to deal with the pain and the anger and the frustration, the resentment, <laughs> and I always wanted to get even. No, I'm not. I don't feel like I need to get even. (laughs) I used to. (laughs) I always had to get even with white people. (laughs) Poor white people. helped me the most when I was finally able to, somebody finally got me to um, to do something. <laughs> you know, they listened to me and they they knew my frustration, they knew I wasn't getting anywhere and by then I was in my mid-twenties, 24, 25 years old and I was still sputtering, you know, I was still, if somebody said the wrong thing to me I could just you know, just shoot darts with my words. I could cut them off so fast. Then I'd feel embarrassed afterwards. And that's not me. You know, I'm a nice person. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And in the white people, they'd usually think, well, now, Juanita, you don't have to be mad at me. I like you. You know, it's like, you're, you're all right for an Indian person. <laughs> and I'd say, ah. 
I want to punch him. Don't, don't talk about that to me or I'll let you have it, you know. Just so touchy. Oh, my God, I was so touchy about it. And um, most of the time I was really nice, but people would slip up and say something, and they did I just could not handle anybody saying anything negative about Indian people or myself or whoever. But uh, this one lady I worked with, older lady, she says, Juanita something I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go with me to to this meeting. Just, you know, a group of people. They're nice people. And uh, I'd like you to, to, would you go with me? Okay. I trusted her. See, I work with her. So we go. And what it was was a 12-step program. It was the uh, Al-Anon family group. And I'd never heard of it before. I knew about AA because one of our neighbors was was in AA and he talked about it. Um, But that was it. Nobody in my family knew about it. So I went there and the very first meeting, you know, the 12-step program, they explain the principles and the traditions. And then they have a topic. And so they were talking about the... uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, <laughs> the word escapes me. When you're you're part of the addiction, uh, the addictive family, you're not the alcoholic, mm-hmm. but you're uh, codependent. They talked about the codependent part of it, not the alcoholic. And the codependent, and I'm thinking, well, the alcohol person, that's where all the problems are, because my dad's an alcoholic, and I grew up with this, and I know. Mm-hmm. And um, codependent. <laughs> so they start talking about what it means. And I felt like they were talking about me. They didn't even know me. It was so weird. But the, the things they were describing were things that I actually felt and did and was. And then I discovered that with an addict and the, the family with them, the codependents get these certain traits. And it, it just kind of becomes part of your life and you don't realize that it's it's this combination. <laughs> so when I started learning what the addiction was and how I was not the addiction, I was a, a member of a family with it, that I have to stand up and be responsible for me this way. I can't be over here, you know, being hurt, resentful, and all that stuff forever. I have to stand up and begin to be me, be responsible for what I do and think. And because the addict is this way doesn't mean I have to be this way. Oh, my God. I'm the problem. <laughs> and then I begin to realize, you know, over time, and I went back, and I went back, and I kept going back. and So eventually I begin to realize, you know, yeah, I do feel sorry for myself. And rightfully. I was a child. I couldn't know any better. But now I'm an adult, so I can put two and two together, and I can be responsible. I don't have to keep, you know, 
carrying on that hurt, that resentment, resentment, resentment. And so when I realized how I resented my father, who I loved, I dearly loved him, but at the same time, I was really pissed at him <laughs> for doing his stuff all, the, all those years. And uh, I knew he knew better, <laughs> but he did it anyway. And, and I was angry at him for not taking charge and, you know, and behaving. And uh, it affected my school years really bad. Um, I go to school Monday morning, you know, after a terrible weekend, and I'd just be worn out from, you know, the pain and the anger and stuff. And not getting enough sleep, because I couldn't sleep when they were partying and stuff, fighting. And then a lot of times they left me alone to babysit my brothers and sisters. I was the oldest, so... A lot of times I was I was tired of being alone with my little brothers and sisters, but I couldn't tell anybody because there's that secrecy. Don't tell. Don't tell. Um, you learn how to not tell and keeping it all to yourself all those years. And I finally told a teacher, but I was practically in high school before I could talk about it. And she just said, oh, well, my dear, other people are worse off than you. You know, end of subject. So I never told anybody again. That was a rotten counselor. <laughs> They're not all like that. <laughs> but I happened to get a bad one. <laughs> so when I went to this Al-Anon group, here I am in my mid-20s, and I'm like, these people know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, And I can't. I can't cover up. I don't need to. They don't even want me to. I don't have to say anything if I don't want to. I don't have to agree with them if I don't want to. You know, so listen and learn and then read. They have a lot of good reading material too. So I, I just learned eventually to um, be responsible for my own my own addiction, you know, which was sort of feeding on my anger and resentment. It took so much time and energy, but I kept doing it and kept doing it. And then finally, uh, the, the next good thing was I got, I found out there was an Indian center in Seattle, and I went to it, and I followed a whole bunch of um, Indian women there who were older than me and sort of became my aunties and my mentors. And I just hung out with them at the Indian center. <laughs> And they had all kinds of activities and stuff to do and beadwork. Yeah. <laughs> and they had a clothing department where you fold the clothes and set them there and get them ready for the people off the street, the homeless. You know, they could come and get clean clothes. And and then they made friends with them. And I actually had friends, you know, from Skid Row that would just come there to get clean shirts and shave. And, and then the Indian Center would have them help out in the kitchen you know, cleaning up or doing stuff. They would do some work, you know, yeah. share with us. And it was just, it was like being home on the reservation, being at the Indian Center. So uh, I got to meet a couple of Lummies, like Ella Aquino, who's from Lummi, and she was one of the leaders down there. So we just, we just had a wonderful time. And I was there for six years. 
So the Al-Anon and then the Indian Center, and they just really helped me heal. Just being surrounded by your own people, but just also learning the addiction part. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they understood me without me having to say things. You know, they how we do, how we do we just get to know each other in good ways with and um, so that really made a big difference so those two things helped me really start to heal but when I moved back here then of course they, we followed up with more good things that went on here at Lemmy there was the uh, adult children of alcoholic families movement Smitty and Luti and Rosalie and me and Mary Donna Mary Donna was part of it uh, we actually, uh, I wish we could have kept it going, but it was a combination of 12 steps and, and talking circle. But we used Indian, um, like some use sage, and you know, some. Luti prefers cedar, she likes to use cedar. But we, we combined our own cultural things with it. So that was continuing me being able to work on my healing over and over so it it's just real important to me to uh, I wish we had talking circles so going on we really need them with the COVID thing <laughs> um, we were they were trying to do some zoom meetings where people could just kind of like be together over the zoom and I did I tried that a couple times and it was nice I enjoyed hearing other people, yeah. and um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, but I, I kind of wish it'd be more formal and regular. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just know it's there. Yeah. It, it, it's not that you're going to do it every day or every week, but you know it's there, and you can go. Like I do know, like the uh, AA twelve steps and any. 12 steps are on every day. I know uh, Willie Lane and different ones have it going all the time. And I don't go because I spent many years going. <laughs> I'm just too old now. <laughs> but I know if I needed to go, I could go. It's there. I know that. So it's a good feeling. And um, I, I don't get to tell Willie that very often. But I should stop in and say hello because <laughs> I enjoy being around uh, 12 steppers. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it. I'm actually I'm glad that you mentioned this because uh, my counselor is trying to get me to go and participate in mm -hmm. these Alamon things because I just like how you said someone they can literally talk about you while you like <laughs> literally explain my whole life with my dad. So. <laughs> and it's just so weird how you you're just like I'm just the same age you know I'm 20, 26 now mm -hmm. and I'm just mm -hmm. so I'm just mind blown by the story right now. Yeah. I find it, it I find it so comforting when I mm -hmm. like, try um, to just have these simple conversations. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that do need to happen, you know. Mm -hmm. Really, like just the last two months, I've just been like just almost giving up, and then I just told mm -hmm. myself, all right, don't do this, Bella. Don't do this to yourself again, because that's that cycle that's continuing. Yeah. And that's all I've seen in my life is people give up, you know. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. But how you say, I was so angry and resentment, <laughs> you know, that's how I literally feel right now, you know. Cause, well, because actually last year, me and my dad got in a fist fight. And, mm. You know, that really hurt, broke my heart and, you know, yeah. really made me lose all respect for him and it really made me not trust him. You know, same with my brother. Mm-hmm. The year before that, you know, me and him got into, uh, mm-hmm. into some conflict and then, Mm-hmm. You know, and it just like holding on to that hurt and that mm-hmm. being able to actually say how you feel really affects them. Exactly, exactly. I I know that one too. I had a I had a actually two incidents with my dad. He never physically harmed me. He did my mother over and over, and I'd have to try to stop him and. Sometimes I was the only one who could stop him. Mm-hmm. So I carried that responsibility, like, if I'm not home, there won't be somebody there to guard my mother. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, I got to be there, I got to be there. <laughs> oh, wear me out. <laughs> so then, of course, I resented him after time, because I thought, I'm a young person, I need to do young person things. Yeah, because, yeah, no, I like that. I really yeah. I'm worried if I leave the house of that living with my dad that things are just going to go sideways, you know. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to be okay and we're not going to go up there. And it really grinds my gears, you know, because my grandma and my grandpa are laid to rest up there. It really breaks my heart that my uncles and my dad can't teach the people that use our land to, you know, live on and, you know, not use just, you know, yeah, use it for you know, their family, like it's mm-hmm. supposed to. Like, I get helping people, and I get wanting to help people, but mm-hmm. you got to understand that they ought to respect our lands and what it was left for and why our grandma and grandpa left it for us and why they wanted to be laid up here in the first place. Yeah, it's sacred ground. That's what I said. Yeah. Um, I actually talked to council like, mm-hmm. some time ago, and I said that. I was like, you would think... We would treat our cemetery just like the Lummi Cemetery because they're sacred lands. It's like mm-hmm. my people are walking upon the lands. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think there's something we should do, yeah. David and me and some other people who knew your your grandparents, especially and, and your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there's something we should do, and and Alvin Colty, we should. Um, figure a way to show uh, a commemoration for them and for that sacred ground. with him and we'll think on that because and I'll talk to Alvin because I know they like to do the proper ceremonies where they're they're kind they're not mean yeah. but they're, they're, that it's powerful yeah, that's yeah, the thing. my cousin Jay he's the chief of police you know, my cousin yeah. Malcolm he's yeah. from the police force yep. Oh yeah, Lisa Wilson. Yeah. Oh, I just love her. I just love her. Yeah, we'll work on that. Let's we'll work on that because 
I, I feel the same way um, when you know I see I see your uh, comments on Facebook and and then I used to work with Roz and mm -hmm. she used to tell me you know how she felt and sometimes I think about her and I think oh, I wonder if she's still feeling that pain <laughs> uh, so yeah we need to come up with some some good way to treat that well, yeah, I'm not, you know, we're going to have to do something. Like, there's not completely a whole bunch of non-natives up there, but mm -hmm. I think we're going to have to, you know, think about getting, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of them live in trailers in there, so we're going to, mm -hmm. in my opinion, I don't want to kick them off the reservation mm -hmm. or anything, mm -hmm. but we're going to have to find a resource for our homeless people to live, honestly. I know, uh, I share with uh, the land across from them, Sonnuses. From the Thomas Jefferson um, side, I share some of that land with uh, all my cousins there. They had that little camp there across. Yeah. And my cousin Vila, she worked for two years trying to get them to move out of there, and she couldn't get it. And and I don't know exactly what clicked, but something happened where she finally must have been the right day and everything and she just did it and she got somebody to help and they got those people out of there and then they put those cement barriers up mm -hmm. which did help for quite a while and um, but it took two years and she couldn't get any legal way to do it and they said all it takes I guess is one person that's a landowner to like give permission yeah, so we got to get that law changed so that it, that it, it, it's... Because when you lease the land, you have to have a majority that approves. Mm -hmm. uh, but, that makes more sense. But when you have somebody just squatting, yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're a friend of somebody in your family or maybe even a relative, and that's the way I feel about it, the land that I've inherited is that it's it is sacred, and I really want everybody to feel that respect. And I uh, I just dread. Uh, I hope that never happens again. But uh, in the meantime, it's undivided, and then they have this thing about one person can un let somebody like that squat on your land. Now I just think that's too unfair. So. There is a trespass committee, and we we need to approach them and find out what they're doing, because they are going around, you know, forcing people to yeah. do certain things or stop doing certain things. Uh, Jay Martin, yeah. he's part of it. So we could uh, try to get in on that and say, look, let's take and make a regulation that's a little bit stronger. Yeah. <laughs> And that that'll stop some of this abuse. Yeah, like not not just the family home owner of the home shouldn't just have a say, but the people that live within the home that, that are family members should have a say as well. You know? Yeah, and you have children, you yeah. want your children safe. Exactly, that's all it is for the most part. Right? Yeah. My son lives up there. Yeah. He can't even go and play outside because there's so many random strangers hanging around and there's so many dogs up there like it's ridiculous and it's out of hand like even my nieces and nephews can't even 
come outside, you know, like three years ago when I moved up there, it was, because my grandpa was still alive then, it was okay, it was, the land was good, but now it's just thrash, people squatting everywhere, you know, unsanitary stuff happening outside. Yeah. So it's just... There's another thing, public health. Yeah. Uh, high risk. Yeah, somebody said to do that. I just don't, I don't know. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll make a little list of these things, and then... Um, uh, and I, I, I'm on the health commission, <laughs> so uh, we can we did we did make complaints about the properties where the drug uh, dealers and and um, squatters were really especially down there in Kinley mm-hmm. Way on the corner. Yeah. Oh my God, that was oh that was just so sad. So anyway, this trespassing committee started working, and they came up with some solutions. Mm-hmm. Nick, Nick uh, Lewis is a part of that yeah. too, so we'll start working with that. Yeah, well, I yeah. just I didn't know. Honestly, I just felt so alone up there by myself because I'm the only one that's ever seen anything. But you know, there is other people that do want stuff out, but you know, people walk all over us and make, make us feel like we don't have a voice. So I think we got to write some more stronger laws. So we can start working with you on that. It'll take some time. Your grandfather's brother, uh, we called him Hickey. I think his name was William. Mm-hmm. And he was a friend of my dad, and I knew him. They used to come and visit us in Seattle. Okay. And uh, so I remember Hickey. He was one of my dad's best friends. And Ernie, my dad knew him too. Yeah. And, That's um, from my mom's side, right? Yeah, let's see. No, that was uh, Armour's brother. Oh, okay. Yeah, his brother in, uh, let's see, Ernie. Anyway, that that's how close our families were. Um, my memory of my dad, he just loved them. So anyway, I'm Juanita, Toby Jefferson, and uh, married to David Jefferson III. And there's five of them. He, he's the middle one, uh, David III. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, uh, I was born uh, in Bellingham, but uh, my mom and dad moved out here to Lummi um, when I was just a couple years old. So I lived here on at Red River uh, for several years, and then they moved down to Marietta, and we lived down there by the river for uh, probably less than a year. I actually got to go to the Marietta school for a very short time, and then my dad got the job and. Seattle, so we ended up moving down there, but uh, that was like my, the first five, six years of my life, I was connected with Lummi. Then I grew up in Seattle and uh, finished high school there and worked at Boeing for 12 years and then got acquainted at the Indian Center where I was a volunteer for six years and from that I got the job as Community Action Director at Swinomish. <laughs> I worked there for a couple of years, and then I moved home and worked up here for the community uh, services program. So I've been here ever since. It's been, uh, gee, what, over 50 years. So I really uh, am happy that I'm home, and I've been a part of all the 
activities that go on here. And uh, David was the he was the first recreation director, and then boys and cl girls club director. And then Armour came to work, and he took over. So that's when they got to work on the boxing program together. Okay. And I got to know Armour more. And uh, Irene, she sold Avon, and I just yeah. loved I loved the stuff she had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I did buy some crochet work from her, and I have it packed away. Sometime I'll get it out. Yes, I'll get it out for you. Yes, and so that that's who I am. I actually then helped uh, get started alumni management training program, which was a two year college program that was held up at Western. So I I attended that. So Lummy um, helped me get my first college experience. Wow. And, uh, and I ended up uh, having enough credits for a two-year um, accomplishment through Northwest Indian College. But then I went back to Western, and I finished and got my four-year. And uh, then I started uh, a master's program, and I was almost finished. I think I had five credits to go, wow. and I got on the tribal council. Nice. <laughs> so I, I quit going to school, okay. and I didn't finish my master's. I know, <laughs> and I spent three years on a, a council instead, uh, which sometimes I kind of regret I yeah. did it that way. But uh, so that that's been a good part of my life is uh, services co to community and uh, and then of course having my family. So David had the two sons, and then we had the two more, and we had four sons we raised. They all graduated from Ferndale High School. <laughs> They've all taken classes at Northwest Indian College, have at least two years there, and uh, James is working on his third year, I think. He's getting close to four years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Took a, we've been taking a few classes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm real happy for him. So anyway, that's kind of my, uh, what most of us did. Of course, David was a fisherman hunter. Okay. So I really benefited from... Uh, uh, being with him because he knows all the uh, canoe culture, he knows all the hunting and the fishing, and he of course knows all the sports, yeah. <laughs> and he he uh, has been a coach and a skipper and all those things, and so I've learned a lot from him, just you know having all his skills that he has. So uh, we're we're you know we're pretty lucky I think to have so much family family culture. I mean, yeah. Myself and my life as well. Yeah. Bill taught me basketball. Yeah. You know, he's always been just a person that cheered me on. Oh, good. Good. That's always been. He's a good coach. I know. Yeah. Well, they all are. Yeah. David and uh, and and Tom. He was a good coach, and James was a good coach when he was coaching. And yeah. And of course, our David, our oldest one, he's the veterans director, yeah. and. Of course, he worked with uh, Armour and learned a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, we, yeah, we are really close. There's just so many things that the people have shared. And of course, yeah. And then, of course, Keith. We just love him. <laughs> and Robert Earl, his, yeah. you know, his grandpa. And I, love, yeah. I love them so much. They, yeah. They've taught me so much about hunting, and it's 
amazing to yeah. see four generations, you know, of them to have all those teachings be handed down, especially them being handed down to my son. I, I'm just so thankful. He got to go hunting already. Yeah, he's been hunting so many times already. Yeah. He's so smart. He knows Kawach and that's elk and he knows Smyas, that's deer. And, you know, we wake, wake them up in the morning and go, do you want to go hunting? Hunting! We go, deer, deer, mountains, <laughs> I want to go to the mountains. It's just, it's, it's good. It's, he's soaking in the knowledge and I'm so proud. Oh, yeah. he's going to have it all. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he'll have it all. Yeah, some people see him and they're like, he's going to be special. So, you know, people yeah. have said that about us, but I'm him, I'm just like, I see mm-hmm. the light that you guys see in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You can you can just tell. Yeah, he's he's gonna be fine. <laughs> he's not afraid of anything. I yeah. just brought him to the summit zone, and he was flying through those slides like it was nothing. No fear. No fear at mm-hmm. all. I was like, I'm glad you're like, I'm glad we're teaching you not to be fearless because I've been fearful of so many things in my life. So it's like you took it away, and now you're just go for anything that you mm-hmm. know that you can do. Yeah, yeah. It, it happens, and just think, in just uh, one generation, you and Keith have been able to do it. Yes. You broke a cycle. Yeah, it's like it's happening in front of our eyes. You broke the cycle. <laughs> and sometimes it's a heavy burden. It is. You carry mm-hmm. so much that mm-hmm. they will never mm-hmm. have to go. But at the same time, you're having a certain kind of fun and enjoyment. Yes, I enjoy it a little mm-hmm. more every day. Mm-hmm. Just like with the boarding schools, I tell myself that mm-hmm. I'm just thankful to be here still, and I'm thankful that I'm, you know, I'm able to practice my culture and my teachings, and I'm glad I'm able to learn my language. And you know, I'm not a fluent speaker, but I'm learning my language and. I'm just, I can just say I'm proud for the people that have kept it alive and, you know, that, you know, we get to learn those things today and that I'll get to pass them down to my son and he'll get to pass them down to his children and, you know, my grandchildren, you know, and so on. (laughs) Thank you so much for this visit. And so I I just really enjoy working with the community and uh, serving in, in the ways that I'm able to. Uh, and I'm on three boards and about six committees, <laughs> subcommittees. So I, I, that's my way of uh, sharing. And to me, it isn't work. Yeah. It's enjoyment. I really enjoy it. So uh, I, I feel fortunate that I could be able to, I can do that. So it's uh, just uh, kind of like uh, all David's. This is David's work. He puts up all the, the pictures and. Um, and, and Bill Bill does a lot of artwork and and his carvings are up there but these other carvings are uh, King Leclerc's and I have several of I have the swans from uh, King Leclerc he was born the same day and year that I was wow. so we always called ourselves the twins, twins. yeah <laughs> So I I used to buy his carvings every chance I got because I just loved them and he's I sure miss him. So those kinds of things matter. But this is my my grandmother Harriet and uh, her mother over there, my great grandmother, 
she's she's uh, Cecilia, and uh, so they're always here with me. <laughs> I love it. I feel their presence uh, always, yeah. and uh, just very comforting. I love old pictures. Yeah, yeah. Because they are comforting, like yeah. people. Yeah. So we'll be working together on some things very soon in the future when you have more time. Yes. Um. Yeah. Just wanted to say, Auntie Juanita, thank you for all of your words today and taking the time to do this. Um. I was struggling a lot with school, but I'm glad I'm just. I put myself out there now just to get it done, and that's all you need to do because I've learned so much just from this conversation, and I can't wait to hear more from you. You can, you can, you can, you can just do it because I, know I was uh, 49 when I got my BA degree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I vowed that I would have it before 50, and I made it. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So. so close, but I made it. Yeah, no, you made it. That's all that matters. <laughs> Right now, this is all I have, but I'm going to give it to you. Thank you to my auntie here for sharing her thoughts and her feelings and her words today. All the things that you have done for our community, my hands and our community's hands go up to you. I can't wait to continue to have much more conversations with you like this. Haishka to my people who continue to support us in our podcast. Haishka to Children of the Seven Sun Productions for helping produce our podcast and my amazing hardworking team who continues to support us as well. Haishka to First Nations Development Institute. Haishka Schadeberg Foundation. Haishka North Sound ACH. Heishka Nova Foundation, Heishka Group House Foundation, Heishka to all of the people that continue to listen and tell your friends and your family about our podcast and if it's out there more, you know, I'm really grateful and full of gratitude that you believe in us and our stories and I'm glad you all love to sit down and take the time out of your day just to listen you know because a lot of people I feel like a lot of people don't listen so this is my this is my outlet to use my voice and I hope you continue to hear my words and hear my thoughts and hear my feelings and I hope that you know today today's you know um, quote was what are you hopeful for you know and I I really do hope that the things that I say really reach out to people Young and Indigenous is produced by Michelle Pulaski Kyla Pulaski Eliza Julius 
Isabella James, and Ellie Smith. Young and Indigenous is a part of Children of the Setting Sun Productions. Original music produced by Mark Nichols. Logo and branding done by Bo Garo. Thank you for additional support by our other team members here at Children of the Setting Sun Productions. And until next time, Lay Nooks and Saw!